0: We are living in a culture that is hostile towards friendship and prone towards loneliness. We're hostile towards friendship because we think uh, a friend is just going to be there for somebody to take our time, take our money, and even use our resources. And so we keep them at a safe distance. We look at the past hurts from friendships, and we say it's not worth the risk to get to know them. Uh, or even forgive them or work through them so we slide ourselves into loneliness. In 2016 and 2017, sociologists started to notice a trend that the American people were dying at a younger and younger age and had been doing so for 1 to 2 years. And this was the first time since 1960 that this had happened. You see, in 1960, it made sense because there was a flu epidemic, so people were dying at a younger age because of that. But in 2016 and 2017, there was no pandemic, there was no flu epidemic, there was no rise in cancer, it was something that was completely different. The real reasons were more grim and much more preventable diseases of self-inflicted unhealth. What sociologists didn't know at the time but would soon find out was the American soul was broken. You see, studies began to show after this that chronic loneliness is more dangerous to your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This stat began to gain significant attention and experts began to call it the epidemic of loneliness. What they began to say was it wasn't the body killing us, It's the lonely soul that's killing the body. Fast forward six years later, this is not getting any better. It's only getting worse. So before we get much further, we have to go, what's what's causing loneliness? Like, where is this loneliness coming from? And it's so subtle and it's so easy for all of us to fall into. Maybe for some of you, it's losing a loved one. Somebody that you had walked through life with, who had built a relationship with, and they pass away, and you're not sharing your life with them anymore. Some of them, it could be you moved away or somebody else that you trusted or knew moved away and that friendship isn't the same anymore. Maybe for some, it was you changed churches this year and there's different reasons for why you should leave a church or why you should be a part of a different church, but oftentimes there's deep relationships that are established there. And when that change happens, it changes those relationships and can make you feel lonely. Or maybe you were in a small group in a church and that small group dissolved and that deep relationship, that deep vulnerability that had been established is changing because people's seasons of life have changed. Or maybe you were scrolling social media uh, this last week and you recognize a friend's getting together and you realize you weren't a part of that and it leaves you feeling lonely. Lonely. Or maybe you were in a dating relationship and went a little too far and that relationship ended and you just went through the holidays alone and you feel lonely. Or maybe you were in a marriage and that marriage didn't work out and that marriage ended and you thought was gonna go till death do you part and it ended tragically and you were left feeling alone and in a lonely state. For some, it could just be somebody said something uh, in the last couple weeks and you feel hurt by something, but loneliness often happens when you're surrounded by people around you, but you feel known by nobody around you. And here is the state where our culture is today, is we are growing up more lonely, more isolated, and more alone than ever before. And when you see that transpire, it always should cause us as Jesus followers to open up God's word and to start say, what does God's word have to say about this? And what is God's answer to this? And that's what I want to do and unpack this morning and we're gonna start in Genesis chapter one, first page of the scriptures. We're gonna look at verses 26 and 27 where we see the image of God. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27, we see the image of God. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, before we jump into the image of God, I think it's really important to see something that's gonna really lay the foundation for us this morning. When it says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, these pronouns emphasize this plurality in the Godhead, this communal nature of who God is. And as progressive revelation unfolds, we learn that uh, the Father's called God in John chapter 6. We learn that the Son is called God in John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 14, John chapter 8 verse 58, Titus 2.13. I give you a bunch of those because people like to question Jesus being God. And then Acts chapter 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. And so what we see here is there's three persons making up one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. And what you see here is this communal nature about God that he lives in relationship, that God exists in an eternal relationship within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we begin to see this take place. Why is this so significant? Verse 26, he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, We are created in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So you and I are made in the likeness and the image of a relational communal God. So what does this mean? It means that we are called to reflect and mirror God. This idea is that you got up this morning and chances are you got in front of a mirror to get ready, brush your teeth, get ready for church to come out the door. And what that mirror did was it gave you a a perfect reflection of who you are as a person externally. Or maybe you were driving in the car this morning and when you're going and you're trying to drive safe, so you look through the rear view mirror to see what's behind you or your side mirrors to see what's behind you so that you can perfectly see and assess What is behind you as you are moving forward away from those things? What does this all have to do? It has to do with the fact that we were made in the image of God to reflect the very character and nature of God, and that includes him being a very relational and communal God. Our responsibility as Christians is to reflect him towards others. So what does this mean? So if God is there and they're serving one another, you see the father serving the son, the son serving the Holy Spirit, then we as Jesus followers who are image bearers reflecting him are called to love and serve one another. Or you also see uh, in the New Testament where Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. He doesn't eat for 40 days and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and comes alongside of him to love and to care for him which means that if we are image bearers called to reflect him, then we are called to love and serve and care for others. You also see them exalting one another, where uh, the Holy Spirit exalts the Son, the Son exalts the Father. You see all of this taking place. And so we as image bearers, as people reflecting the very character of God, are called to exalt and lift up others. You also see them become unified, and they're completely unified. They are completely secure in their role and fulfilling that role to carry out the mission. You see this in Ephesians 1, where the Father chooses, the Son redeems humanity, and the Holy Spirit seals them in this way. So we are to be secure in the role that God has for us as image bearers to reflect him. And what you see here is the creation of male and female unfold. Turn with me one page over to Genesis chapter two and we're gonna pick up the story in verse 18 where we start to see the creation in a more detailed account of Eve. We see here that we were made for community. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So what do we see here? That we cannot image a relational God and his nature in isolation. We cannot be image bearers that are reflecting him while being alone and in isolation. We have to be in relationship with God and we have to be in relationship with one another. And my prayer is that if you entered in here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of your salvation. You would believe in him and know what he has done for you. But you have to move past that and also enter into friendship, relationship with other people. You see, you can be lonely with just you and God. I know this sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but you can be lonely and be a lone Christian where it's just a relationship with God and a relationship with you. How do I know that? Look at the story of Adam. Adam at this point is walking with God in the cool of the day. It's just him and God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're in this relationship and he's in a relationship with the all-sufficient God the all-holy God, the almighty God, the all-fulfilling God. And yet this is where Genesis chapter two, verse 18 lands. It is not good that man should be alone. So what this is telling us is you were created for relationship with other people. You cannot do this alone. And so you need relationship with other people. And what happens is, is the story begins to unfold and God creates Eve and Adam and Eve live in relationship with each other and with God. Let's see what happens in chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You see this word crafty? Think of this picture of like deception deception or manipulation, and as chapter three unfolds, you are going to see just how crafty and deceptive and manipulative the serpent truly is in Adam and Eve's lives, but you're also hopefully gonna see how crafty and deceptive he is in our lives. And what do we see next in the verse one? He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first way he's always gonna be crafty in your life is he's gonna get you to doubt God's word. He's going to get you to doubt God's truth, question God's truth. And so what did God actually say to Adam? Chapter 2, verse 15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay. That's what he said. He, this is. You can have anything in the garden, everything you have full access to, but don't eat from this one tree. The fruit of this tree, don't touch it, okay? Don't be involved in it. What is uh, Eve's response to the serpent in verse two? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, so all of a sudden, Eve's like, responds, for the most part, she's pretty accurate. She's on point, and she knows this. But the serpent says, you won't surely die. Why? Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's Adam and Eve, and they're like, I want to be like God. Do you want to be like God? Yeah, I want to be like God. Well, do you want to be like God? Yeah, I want to be like God. And they begin to question these things. But remember, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, whose image are they made into? God's. Whose likeness are they already made into? God's. So the enemy here, the serpent, is trying to deceive them, is trying to manipulate them and say, I'm offering you something God is trying to withhold from you when in reality, God has given them absolutely everything they need and they already are like God. They're already made in the image of God. They're already called to reflect him. Why is he being so crafty like this? Here's why. He knows he can't steal the image of God from Adam and Eve, but he can distract them from living out the purpose of the image of God in them. If our purpose in life is to reflect the very nature and character of God to those around us, that means that that is our primary purpose. And if when you look at 2024 and you go, I'm lacking purpose, I'm lacking direction, just be an image bearer. Reflect the very nature and character of God in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, and you will find great fulfillment in doing that. But here, the serpent goes, I can't steal the image of God from you so I can distract you from fulfilling its purpose. So what does this look like at work? At work, you may be having the image of God. You may be called to reflect him, but you're tempted to go, I'm gonna chase the almighty dollar and I'm gonna climb the corporate ladder stepping on other people's toes and moving ahead of it. And now I'm making a lot of money but yet I'm missing the very purpose of being an image bearer to reflect the very nature of God to my coworkers who do not know me. Or at home, instead of being reflecting and discipling your kids to know and follow Jesus and reflect the very nature and character of God, the enemy's gonna try and distract you from saying, let's get into so many sports that we don't have time for this. Let's get into so many extracurricular activities here. Let's make you so busy that you miss out on reflecting the very image and nature of God to the next generation in your family line. This is what happens and how crafty the serpent truly can become. I love what uh, Justin Early says in his book, Made for People. He says, the route of the enemy is always to pull you aside and tell you lies about who you are and who God is. Because you are the most vulnerable when you are alone. It worked on Adam and Eve, and you bet it will work on us as well. So his primary purpose is he's going to try and get in front of you and God, separate you, get you alone, and try and distort the very purpose that you were called to live. Or he's going to try and get between you and other people and try and separate you from them. So what happens in Genesis chapter 3 next? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths." So they fall into the deception. They sin against God. They disobey what he has called them to. And now they feel the the guilt of it. They go, oh shoot, we're naked. What happens if we actually die? You know what we're going to do? We're going to insulate ourselves. We're going to sew fig leaves over top of ourselves and put a loincloth over and act like nothing's wrong. That's what sin does in your life and my life. Sin insulates us. Here we stay in relationship with others, but we never open up. We never share what's going on in our lives. We may drop a hint here or there on social media or with a few friends, but our sharing lacks true vulnerability. We do what Adam and Eve did and we decide to try and hide our true selves and instead of pursuing true vulnerability. And there's a huge difference between sharing and vulnerability. And this is one of those lies. This is one of the deceptions that the serpent tries to throw our way. Sharing is what we do to update people on our lives. Vulnerability is what happens when we try and let people into our lives. There's a big difference there. We should share. We should update people on what's going on through Christmas cards or social media or through what's going on. But we can't stop there. We have to open up our lives. We have to have a level of vulnerability that is so important for us to live in community with one another. Sharing takes time. Vulnerability takes courage. It may take time for you to share what's going on in your life. It takes a lot of courage to open up what's truly going on behind the scenes and what's taking place. And you see this in the life of David. David was a great king in the nation of Israel. He was known as the golden era when he was the king there. There was uh, amazing things happening in Israel during this time. But David finds himself, instead of being out of battle, lusting after a woman, sleeps with a married woman, gets her pregnant, and then instead of coming clean, confessing it, he tries to hide it by having Uriah, her husband, killed in battle, and then he takes her in. And so from the external, everything looked great. But his sin insulated himself, and we get a picture of what was truly going on during that year of David's life. Psalm 32, verse 3 says this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. On the external, what was going on in Israel? Everything looked great. Everything was moving forward as it should. Internally in David's life, he was being eaten alive. Like, do you see the picture that these words are painting? Like his bones are wasting away. They're they're deteriorating away. He feels like his strength is being uh, just taken away from him because of the heat of the summer. The hand of God was so heavy upon him for his conviction to come clean, to confess it. And yet he refused to do it. You see, We are no different. Some of us are carrying around and we relate to Psalm 32, verse three so well because you're like, I feel internally like I'm wasting away. I feel like my strength is being dried up and we fall into the trap that David did. And we think that in relationship with others, by hiding what is truly going on to us, that is the safest thing to do. And that it's keeping us away from a dangerous situation. But hiding and shielding it is actually shielding us from true love. There's a big difference there. When we hide, it's shielding us from love. And it may seem counterintuitive at first, but consider that we are not happy when we are hiding. When you are hiding something, there is no internal happiness in you. When David was hiding for a year, none of these words in Psalm 20 or 32 verse 3 tells us that he was happy. He was miserable. We are the most happy when we are fully exposed and loved anyway. We are the most human when we are the most known. Meaning that when we are in insulation, when we're trying to hide our sin and we're afraid to go and open up, when we actually do open up, like David finally opened up, because Nathan the prophet pursued him. He desired to have a relationship with him. He knew something was off. David confesses it. And what you see is this beautiful portrayal of repentance in Psalm 51, where he comes clean and and he confesses these things. And it wasn't without consequence, but there was great peace that took place there when he acknowledged his sin. And the same can transpire in your life as well, because David became the most known when he was the most human And you too can become the most known when you become the most human. Genesis chapter three, let's see what happens next. Sin not only insulates us, but sin isolates us. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So sin doesn't just insulate us where we try and stay in relationship with other people. Sin also tries to isolate us where Adam and Eve, what we see is they try and hide from the presence of God. Now, here's my question for you. Can you hide from an all-knowing God? Can you hide from an all-present God? No. So here they are, they think, I'm okay, I'm gonna hide here. Now, here's what I love. I love two-year-olds, okay? I have a two-year-old at home. And this little two-year-old, a week ago, I put her to bed. And one of the things I love about a two-year-old is you start to see some of their personality come out, but in the rawest of forms, and they really have no self-control and, like trying to hide that personality. It's just raw and real, and you get the privilege of kind of forming and shaping that as a parent. Well, I put her to bed, and then I went to go tuck my boys in, and I come out of their room, and I notice her door is cracked open, so I get, go in, and I call her out. I call for her. She's not in her bed. She's not behind her bed. She's not next to... Uh, her dresser either. So I go into the bathroom, I call for her, no response, don't hear from her in the bathroom. I was like, maybe she went to the bathroom. And then from there, I go into the living room and she's not there as well. And I look out of the corner of my eye and there she is laying face down, arms over her face on the kitchen counter next to a bowl of chocolate. (laughs) She thinks she's hiding. She thinks I can't see her. And as I get closer to her, all I see is those cheeks moving faster and faster and faster. And I said, Brinley, what are you doing? Nothing. And I said, what are you eating? Nothing. Why is there chocolate on your face? I like chocolate. I want chocolate. And I said, are you supposed to eat chocolate without telling daddy or mommy? No, I'm so sorry. You forgive me. And she thinks she's off. She thinks she's off at that moment. So we got to have a nice little conversation. But that's what sin does. Sin, when we are isolated, it, it leads us to fulfill our own desires. When she was in her room by herself, laying down for a bed, she knew we were in the room. She goes, you know what? I see, I know where chocolate is. I want chocolate. I'm gonna go eat chocolate. Proverbs 18.1 says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. When we isolate ourselves, we are prone to seek our own human instinct, desire, and that usually is never a great thing. Our current culture is pushing us more and more down the stream into the direction of becoming self-sufficient and autonomous, pushing away from in relationship with others, pushing us away from uh, relationship with friends. And we think that true happiness is going to be found when we're in isolation and when we're self-sufficient and autonomous. But true happiness can only be found when we are truly known and truly loved by those around us. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has not... another to lift him up. Again, if, you, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. What a beautiful picture of what happens in isolation. Because if you're out hiking by yourself and you fall and get hurt, no one's there to pick you up. If you go to bed outside, if you're camping by yourself, no one's there to keep you warm. If you have a single strand cord and that cord has got some tension on it, it's going to break, whereas a three fold cord is going to withstand. That's the picture of isolation versus community with one another. And here's what one of the great dangers happens. One of the greatest dangers technology has brought to us is the invention of fake food. Since the invention of fast and processed food in America, for example, public health has been crippled by the problems of preventable diabetes and heart conditions. It is quite possible that eating fast and processed food may kill more people than smoking. Why? Because these foods give us the feeling of being full while leaving our bodies undernourished. We have the same problem when it comes in relationship. Technology can give you the sensation of being known when actually we are in complete isolation. This happens with a comment or a like on social media. It can give you the feeling that you have been social while leaving your soul deep need for friendship unnourished. Leaving a post or a video can give you a sensation of vulnerability without anyone being known or being there to love you back. There's no hug, there's no hand, there's no shoulder to cry on. Having followers gives you a real sense of being surrounded by friends, yet none of them are committed to you. Cancel culture. The moment you say something they don't like, they unfollow you, they don't, aren't a part of you. So there's not true depth and commitment there. The promise of social media is to be fully seen and fully liked, but the promise of friendship is to be fully known and fully loved. And these two are very, very different. When we spend our, the majority of our relational time Snacking on technology, we will die from the preventable disease of loneliness. Is fast food bad? No, in moderation. Is technology bad within moderation? No, it is not. But when it becomes the primary diet for what we eat in fast food, or if technology becomes the primary diet for where we find and seek relationships, we are going to find ourselves in a very vulnerable and tough spot. And that's how deceptive the enemy can be here. So sin can isolate us and it can insulate us, but let's see the redemptive heart of God unfold here in verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' he said, "'I heard the sound of you in the garden "'and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. "'He said, "'Who told you that you were naked? "'Have you eaten of the tree "'which I have commanded you not to eat?' "'The man said,' the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So here we are, and you get to see the redemptive heart of God here. Because at this point, God asked them four questions and he's not angry. He's not yelling at them. He's just asking them four simple questions to give them an opportunity to confess and repent and come clean. And instead of Adam taking ownership of his sin, Adam blames Eve. Instead of Eve owning her sin, she blames the serpent and we've been blaming people ever since. We don't take responsibility for our actions. But the redemptive heart of God was giving them this opportunity to take ownership and to take out. The other thing that I notice here is notice the response to our sin. Our response to our sin is always hiding. God's response to our sin is always seeking us out and finding us. Because he knows the the difficulty, the tragedy, the hardship that you and I face when we're stuck in that type of position. And that's why God sent forth his son to live a human life to pay the penalty for our sin. You see, because it was man, it was Adam who brought sin into the world. So it had to be man to take the penalty for the sin, but yet every man born after Adam was born into sin. So it had to be God to do that. So Jesus leaves his heavenly abode, walks the lonely road towards the cross, dies a sinner's death, even though he was sinless, And for the first time in all of eternity, present and past, the father turns his back upon the son and the son endures the wrath of God, paying the penalty and judgment for sin. And it was there on the cross that Jesus died for the sin of independence. He died for the sin of selfishness. He died for the sin of rivalry. He died for the sin of jealousy. He died for the sin of blame shifting. He died for the sin of gossip for backbiting, for the sin of neglect, for the sin of isolation, for the sin of pride and the sin of apathy and every other perversion of grace that distorts community. And he accomplished that on the cross and rose again, renewing and restoring the opportunity for you to have a relationship with him and to renew and restore the opportunity you have to have a relationship with other people. We are no longer left in our sin. We have now been redeemed through a belief and a relationship with him. And so we need to trust in that. We need to believe in that. And we need to live that out. So as image bearers, as men and women called to reflect him and to reflect him to the world, what does the New Testament have to say about this? What does the New Testament lay out for us to do? There's a ton of passages called the one and other passages, which gives us an example of what it looks like to live life with other people. And I'm going to have them put it up on the screen here. There's just a few of them. Just a few. But if you devote your life to this, you are going to reflect the very nature and image of God. Now, I'm going to walk through them quite fast, uh, because we're not going to be here all day, and I'm sure you have New Year's uh, Day or New Year's Eve plans, but I think that these are going to be foundational for us as we head into 2024. So, first one, John 13:34. A new commandment I give you: Love one another. So. The primary call there is to seek the highest good of another. That's what this idea of love is. So our primary goal here is this new commandment that God has given to us is that we seek the highest good of other people, that we don't put me and what's best for me at the forefront. We put what's best for other people in our circles of friendships and relationships. Romans 12.10 says this, outdo one another in showing honor. This one's not going along with the flow of culture. Culture says, outdo one every, everyone else and climb that ladder and be better than everyone else. Scripture says, outdo one another in honoring them, exalting them, bringing awareness to them. He tells us all of those things, which is so different. If my family could do this one, there would be a lot more peace in my home. If my kids outdid one another in exalting and honoring and caring for one another, this would be a great thing. This would do wonders to our church and to our cities. Uh, next one, Romans fifteen seven says this: Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. Bring an inviting culture into our lives. I love our welcome teams, from the parking team to the greeting team to the seating team. Because every month when we do connect across to the hallway, one of the things that we hear is just how welcoming they feel. That when people look them in the eyes, when they shake their hands, when they ask them their names, there's a welcoming nature to that. But that's not reserved for just a few of us, that's reserved for all of us. That we can't just stick with the same five or six people that we meet with or we come into community with. We've got to look for those who aren't connected already, and invite them into the family of the church. Romans fifteen fourteen says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Meaning that we need to know God's word, which means that we need to daily be in God's word. We need to weekly gather with God's people, so that we can receive the instruction of God. But then too, we need to be people that are instructing others, especially if we see them starting to drift into loneliness, starting to distance themselves away from us. We need to be like Nathan the prophet and pursue them and instruct them in the things God is saying. The next thing he says here, Galatians 5.13, serve one another get in front of other people, serve them, love them, care for them, uh, do the things that they don't want to do to help them out. And this is an example of what living out true image-bearer reflection community looks like. Ephesians four two, bear with one another, meaning be patient with them, walk through life with them, help them along the journey, okay? It's not going to happen overnight. Transformation doesn't happen overnight. Change doesn't happen overnight. We have to take time. Like, When my two-year-old was a baby, I wasn't like, walk, get up, move. No, what was I doing? I was holding her finger and helping her start to move her little legs. And then it was holding one hand and then getting her to walk to me. It was a process to take place. The same is true with bearing with one another. Transformation happens over time, not instantaneously. Next one, he says here, Ephesians 4, 32, this one's a good one. Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other. Okay, somebody opposes you, they have opposition for you, you're called to have the disposition of kindness. That's not easy. Compassion, putting yourself in their shoes, seeing it from their perspective, gives you a little bit more perspective. And then when they hurt you or they wrong you, you are called to forgive them. That one's difficult. But this one gets even easier though when we go look at the next verse later that says, just as Christ has forgiven you. Oh wait, I wanna receive forgiveness, but I'm not gonna grant it to you. If you receive forgiveness, then we are called to give that forgiveness towards other people. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Sometimes we need somebody to call us out. Like if we're in isolation or we're insulating ourselves or we're distancing ourselves or we're pursuing a sinful lifestyle, we need somebody like Nathan the prophet that comes up to us and in love calls us out and calls us into repentance and back into community. The Old Testament says in the wisdom literature, faithful are the wounds of a friend, a brother closer in adversity. These are all pictures of, of holding and admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, encourage one another and build one another up. Paul, as he's pastoring this church, calls Timothy to encourage the church, push them in this way, tell them who you want them to become, encourage them in that direction, and this will transform a society. It's not just telling them all the things they're not doing, but tell them the things you want to happen and encourage them and have that take place. James 4.11 Brothers, do not slander one another. God says he hates slander because slander destroys the very community and relationships with one another. Here's the picture. If Zach, who's leading worship over here, I got a problem with Zach and Marisa over here is playing keys and I go, I got a problem with Zach and I go and gossip and slander Zach to Marisa and then I come over and I reconcile with Zach. Do you think Marisa has a very good view of Zach? No. No. At the first gathering, I told that story and they go, so what's going on between Zach and Marisa? <laughs> I was like, guys, thank you. Um, you get the point. First Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, meaning be hospitable, have people come over, take them out to lunch, take them out to coffee, get to know them, build community, build friendship with one another. And then there's that little caveat, without grumbling, Yeah, some of you hosted Christmas and you're like, uh uh-oh, me too. I hosted Christmas too. You got to do it without grumbling. You got to do it with a good attitude, a good heart. Somebody's going to break something when you're hospitable. Something's not going to happen, but we're called to be hospitable. Galatians 6, 12 says this, bear one another's burdens meaning come alongside of somebody who's struggling, who's going through a difficult time, and you hold them up, you walk through life with them, you encourage them so that they don't feel like they're in isolation or alone and have to take this road alone. You bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says, live in peace with one another. Live at peace with one another. Meaning that there's gonna be conflict, there's gonna be hardship, but are you pursuing peace? Are you pursuing reconciliation? Are you pursuing this, this desire to repair that? And there's times where that's not possible. Scripture acknowledges that. If it's possible, which means that sometimes it's not, but are we pursuing that peace? And James five sixteen therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Meaning that don't live in isolation, don't live in insulation. Confess those sins. Do as David did when Nathan the prophet confronted him and Be vulnerable, be transparent, be honest with where you're at. And when you do that, our response to when you say that is to pray for them so that they can experience the fully loved component. You pray for them, you take their requests, their shortcomings to God, and you begin to allow his spirit to minister to them as you are present and you are with them on this journey. And this takes place. So, just a, not a tall order, you know, not, not too difficult. There's just a few of them up here. But if we devote this year to just a few of these things, the level of community transformation, the lack of loneliness that will take place will transform our families, our worlds, our church in this way. And as I kind of wrap up uh, and kind of bring us to a close, I came across this story that I thought was so fascinating and so fitting for this. In 1914, there was a man named Ernest Shackleton and his crew of 27 men loaded up in a ship called the Endurance and set off for Antarctica. Their goal was to be the first people in history to hike across Antarctica on foot. Spoiler alert, they didn't make it. The waters off Antarctica were particularly cold that year, and the ocean froze over while they're still a couple miles offshore. Surprise, surprise. So these men were stuck in a ship that was stuck in the ice at the bottom of the world. And keep in mind, there's no GPS and radio was this new invention. So no one knew where they were at. Guess how long they were stuck for? Almost two years. Yeah, and here's what's the most shocking part. They all survived. And even more shocking, they didn't kill each other. You go, how did they do that? They laughed together. They ate together. They reconciled together. They made sure each other were warm. They made sure each other were fed. All of, They journaled together. All of these things, these rhythms, this communal nature transpires and takes place, which are the very things that God's calling us in the New Testament that we just looked at just a moment ago which tells me that this is possible and we can do this. Now, the book doesn't tell us if they're Christians or not, but I believe that some of these truths are foundational for what led them to be able to not just survive, but to thrive until the ocean thawed out and the sun finally came up because in the winters in Antarctica, the sun never comes up and you're like, I live in Oregon and that doesn't happen either three months out of the year. But they survive, they thrive, and they begin to live in true community and relationship with one another. And so what I'm asking you is, are you truly living in community with one another? Are you fulfilling the image-bearing, communal, relational nature with people? I'm not saying you need to do that with everybody, but are you doing that with a few? Are there people in your life that you can turn to in your time of need? That there's consistent and faithful relationships That are taking place there where they know not just what you share, but who you truly are. And if you have those people, you thank them, you encourage them, you build them up, and you cherish them. If you don't, start pursuing it so that you don't allow the enemy to have his way in your life. Let's pray.